Welcome to episode 130 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to be uh, talking uh, in our interview to Ellen Nakashima, who has been called to New York to investigate uh, and report on uh, uh, the terror uh, attacks up there. Uh, so we're postponing our interview until we can get her uh, in a studio or at least on a phone line. Uh, so we'll do the news roundup today. Uh, and for that, I'm going to be joined by Katie Castle, uh, an attorney in our uh, International Regulatory Compliance Group. Have we gotten you out of that group and into, like, cybersecurity? I think I'm kind of in both now. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's good. Uh, and uh, Maury Schenk, um, uh, uh, who has many, many um, qualifications, including being associated with our London office, but uh, uh, most important is uh, he's two days away from going on honeymoon. Uh, so, uh, Maury, thank you for uh, being willing to talk to us about cybersecurity uh, uh, before going on honeymoon. Yeah, and I'll listen to the excitement of the next two weeks when I'm back. <laughs> well, you can pick it up remotely. That's, uh, uh, I'm sure that you've got nothing more entertaining to do than that. Uh, and Michael Vadis. I'll, I'll ask my wife what you think. Uh, I, don't tell her I said that. Uh, Michael Vadis is in our New York office, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department. Uh, Michael, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Good to be here. Okay, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, so why don't we jump right in? It's going to be a law-heavy discussion, uh, so brace yourself. Uh, uh, first uh, up, uh, the New York uh, Financial Services uh, uh, Department uh, has put out cybersecurity regs for banks and insurers that uh, has a lot of people talking about how uh, how tough they are, Katie. Uh, uh, do you think they go beyond what uh, the federal agencies have required? Um, I don't know if they go beyond it per se. They are much more specific. A lot of the federal that's not reg- usually a good sign. A lot of the federal regulations use a reasonableness standard, things like that, and these regulations have very detailed requirements. So encryption of all non-public data, both in transit and in rest, is written into the into the regulations, as well as annual penetration testing, quarterly vulnerability assessments, uh, multi-factor authentication, um, requiring, requiring cybersecurity personnel and requiring them to stay up to date on defenses and threats. Um, they're just, they're very, very detailed regulations. So I'm puzzled because I'm not sure that if you encrypt the data at rest at all times, then you can't read it. So it can't be encrypted at rest all the time, and it's very hard to do manipulations of databases if, if it's encrypted. It's not that it's impossible, but it's really this, – that's a very expensive thing to do, um, and it's not clear whether it's going to solve the problem because the people who are decrypting it, the systems administrators and the users, and then they have to decrypt it to use it, uh, uh, the credentials that they're using are exactly the credentials that the hackers are stealing. So they're going to steal the decryption tools at the same time they steal the other uh, capabilities. At least that would have been my first uh, uh, thought. And, and in general, when you say you must do this, it's usually a good idea when you say it, but six years later, it starts to look a little uh, frayed. Right. And I think and I think some of the requirements, including, if I remember correctly, the encryption requirement, does have some provision for if it's not feasible or not currently feasible to have it, they can um, implement controls that 
in lieu of the required control, but um, what exactly that standard is going to look like. Is, now, this uh, is just out for comment, right? So yes. uh, if, uh, for people who are listening to this and they're starting to worry, you do have a chance to comment on the uh, on the regs. Uh, and these will apply to insurers who yes. have not been notably attacked, uh, except for the health insurers. Uh, uh, so uh, they're, they're going to be taking on a heavy regulatory burden on the ground that they are in the financial services uh, industry or just had the bad luck to be regulated by New York, uh, uh, they're, they're going to be thrust into the forefront of uh, cybersecurity regulation. Okay. Good news for the insurance companies. Uh, all right. Well, and speaking of good news, there's just, there's just no end to the good news out of Europe, uh, uh, which I think is just officially given up. They've decided their comparative advantage is not writing code, but writing regs. And by God, they're going to write them and write them and write them if, to, if it kills uh, the entire uh, uh, tech sector in the United States. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, what are the latest uh, proposals out of Europe, and how bad are they? Well, they're pretty major. Uh, there's two that uh, have come out in the last couple of weeks. Um, about uh, 10 days ago, there was a, an amendment to EU copyright rules. So EU can harmonize copyright rules among the member states, and uh, it allows um, newspapers and other publications to, ha- to have the copyright in snippets of their articles and headlines so that if they're indexed by the likes of Google News, they can charge Google for that, which um, might seem like a good idea to some. But it's been tried in Spain where Google just shut down Google News. It's been tried in Germany where Axel Springer, who's one of the big publishers, just decided to give in because they lost so much traffic when they tried to stop Google from using their headlines. So um, it's probably the wrong way to solve what's uh, a big problem facing the um, the news uh, news organizations in the digital era. Yeah, I can understand why they There's feel bad. There's another one, but maybe let's talk about that first. Yeah, well, it, you know, in the U.S., I think this would be non-copyrightable uh, as the hot news uh, uh, rule that, uh, you know, facts are not copyrightable. Uh, um, uh, the snippets rarely are copyrightable uh, or it's fair use to say this is what the uh, the article says. And if you want to read it, you can go there. Um, and so this is just, to my mind, a deep-seated hostility on the part of media, which we saw in the U.S. too, toward the new technology, which seems to be bankrupting them, uh, disintermediating them, uh, creating new competition, leaving them without any of their traditional uh, sources of revenue. Uh, but in Europe, um, where, whereas in the U.S. it's just the Internet and the, the march of technology uh, that is doing it uh, in Europe, uh, the entire blame for the march of technology falls on Google. Uh, and so if they can punish Google for the terrible things that are happening to their world, uh, they're glad to do it, even if, it, if it's going to cost them an arm and a leg, too. Um, I think that's probably about right. I mean, there's, it's easier to, uh, to go after Google over here. And uh, there's more of a regulatory reflex in Europe. You know, you said, how much damage is this going to do to U.S. Internet companies? I mean, the, the sad part is the real damage is done to the European Internet sector because no one can – this is a terrible place to build a big Internet company. 
Oh, yeah, if you so, want to be compliant. Uh, and, and of course, there is a tendency to be compliant, especially, uh, you know, only Silicon Valley can get away with just thumbing its nose at, uh, at the law. Uh, uh, the smaller tech sectors in these countries can't do that. Uh, so, yeah, they, they spend all their time worrying about how they're going to comply with the law instead of just writing code. And then the other big development is last week there was is uh, was a proposal for amendment to the EU communications regulation framework, and it has a number of changes. But the one that has gotten the headlines uh, properly is that they're going to start to regulate over the top services like Skype and WhatsApp. Um, limited regulation at first relating to uh, as could information security and access to emergency services potentially uh but it's uh it's a real regulatory advance to things that had previously been unregulated over here and are of course unregulated in the US for communications law purposes you know i i i, I uh... It's obvious what's going on here uh, in both cases. There's still a, a, a fairly a vital uh, media industry in Europe. So, of course, the media industry is favored over the tech industry. And there are plenty of uh, national champion and uh, uh, profitable telecom carriers who have regulated uh, uh, SMS systems uh, and so naturally uh, favoring them or at least trying to even the playing field for them vis-a-vis uh, Silicon Valley looks good to the Europeans. Uh, but on this one, I, I guess I, I feel a little more sympathetic to the idea that uh, – if you're offering uh, what amounts to a, a short message system uh, uh, and people have come to believe that they can send messages to the cops uh, uh, by using a particular code, that uh, you, know, uh, you ought to be able to comply with the same standard. Yeah, I think the policy behind this one has more sense to it. I mean, on the news one, the, the policy that they're trying to advance doesn't actually help the people they're trying to help. Here it's a, you know, a traditional fight about how much you're going to be regulated. And then when you get to emergency services, it gets highly technical how the connectivity would have to happen. And I think that's going to be a big regulatory battle. But with the direction things are going, one can see why this is happening. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I remember when we did the E911 uh, and uh, um, location uh, requirements for 911 calls in the U.S. It was it was deeply painful for the uh, the companies to to live up to the expectations that had been set by an, a, a landline system, uh, um, and it took eight years to work through the regulatory requirements. So we can we can expect at least eight years of uh, back and forth between uh, uh, the messaging services, over the top messaging services, and the EU. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is a proposal anyhow, and it's going to be a few years of back and forth even before it becomes law, and then we can expect exactly what you just described. Okay. Well, um, and uh, the. Um the run of the courts that were saying, um, if you can't show that your breach caused you any damage, you don't have standing to sue, um, is, um, has been stemmed. Uh, I think the Sixth Circuit in what I, what I'm puzzled to, to, to hear is a, an unpublished opinion, uh, said, no, no, you don't actually have to do that. Uh, uh Michael, uh, was this, 
the sort of opinion that should have been unpublished? Interesting question. I, I was struck by that too, but you know, I'm no longer surprised by what uh, the circuit courts uh, decide to render in unpublished fashion. It's, it's bizarre. It's a fully uh, reasoned uh, opinion, so I, I don't see any any good reason that this is not published. And, and they uh, knew they were they, they knew they were creating a or not creating, but they were joining a conflict uh, on the what had been the minority side, right? Uh, yeah, there's sort of, I would characterize this as somewhere in the middle of the split, not, not starkly on, on one side, uh, because of the, the facts of the case. And it's interesting, the, the facts are interesting. First, this does involve an insurance company, not a health insurance company nationwide. So, so it's, I guess, the exception, uh, to what you described earlier as, as the general rule of insurance companies not being, uh, the targets themselves to a, to a great extent. Um, but here, hackers broke into the, the nationwide database and got access to things such as information such as dates of birth, names, social security numbers, and driver's license numbers. Um, there were no allegations that the uh, information had been misused by the hackers, um, but the court said, uh, look, you've, you've got hackers who got access to personal information, uh, and it's reasonable to assume that the hackers are going to misuse it. And that, that's... Um, contrary to what we've seen from some other uh, courts. But at least here, you know, this is not a lost uh, laptop or something where it's not even clear that somebody accessed the data. Here you did have people who purposely accessed personal information. Uh, and that's why I would characterize this as somewhere in the middle uh, of the of the circuit split rather than on one side or the, or the other. Um, one of the things uh, uh, the court said, which, which I find somewhat troubling, and, and we've seen it at least once before, it said, look, uh, Nationwide itself offered free credit monitoring uh, and identity theft protection for a year. Um, the the uh, the logic being that um, if the if the defendant itself is offering that sort of uh, protection, it must assume that there's a real risk of harm, and therefore that's going to be held against it when it comes to deciding uh, whether the plaintiff has standing. I, I think that is that just is. That's bad as a policy matter because it's going to make companies a little uh, more reluctant to offer identity theft protection um, if they if they think that it's going to be held against them when they're sued. Uh, it's also just not quite logical. I mean, companies offer that sort of protection for lots of reasons, um, not because they necessarily think the information is actually going to be used to commit identity theft. Yeah, in part so uh, they can say there never was any. Yeah, and in part, I mean, you, you know, a lot of companies feel like they have to do it just to protect their brand and tend to um, make it seem like they're doing everything possible to protect their their customers' information, even if even if there's little to actually be gained from that sort of protection uh, in, in real terms. Yeah. So it, it does it does end the run that, that you pointed out, and, and there there does exist a very real circuit split on what sorts of um, future harm or potential future harm are sufficient to, to get you standing in court if you're a plaintiff. Uh, and, you know, I don't see this getting resolved by the circuit. So ultimately, this is going to, this is going to have to end up in the Supreme Court. Yep, uh, that's that's my guess too. They, it's sort of surprising that they haven't taken it uh, thus far. Maybe they thought it was going to work itself out, but clearly it's not going to work itself out now. Uh, um, and we'll get the chance to see what the um, what the Supreme Court thinks of all this. Uh, and it probably makes a big difference, as you point out, what the facts of the particular case that actually gets there are. 
Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that that may be one reason the court hasn't taken it uh, taken up the issue yet because the the decisions are so fact specific. Uh, but there, you know, it is becoming clear that certain types of facts uh, will lead to different results in in different circuits. So I think that there's been enough percolation at this point in the circuits for for the court to step in. All right. Well, there's two or three cases I'd like to just move through quickly. The CFTC, uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Corporation, has has issued final rules on cybersecurity testing. We talked about this when it was a proposed rule. Uh, Any surprises? No, no surprises in the in the final rule. It's pretty. uh, I think the the rules are are pretty similar to what was initially proposed. But you know, the key point here, I think, is just like you have the, the New York Department of Financial Services now stepping up its role as a, as a big regulator. Now you've got the CFTC on the federal level entering the fray and, and getting very specific about what its regulated entities have to do to uh, protect uh, against cyber attack. Yeah. And, more specific and than, than other regulators have been. Pen testing is is now firmly ensconced as part of the, of the standards that you have to, or part of the procedures you have to bring to bear on your cybersecurity plan. And, and one element that I'm particularly happy about, since this, this goes to something that we offer our clients, is uh, security incident response plan testing. You know, it's one thing to have a, uh, an incident response plan. Now you're expected to test it, which is something we've been telling our clients for a while. You really need to test the thing to make sure it, it works and just to make sure you know what you're supposed to do when the, when the real incident happens. And I'm trying to remember whether... We've ever had a client who we went out to and did incident response uh, plan testing where the tabletop turned out pretty much uh, without surprises. Uh, My my sense is people are always surprised when they when they test their plans. I I think that's right. You know, they may not they may not say they're surprised, but they certainly learn a lot because, (laughs) um, you know, it's it's very easy just to to write a plan that. Uh, you know, has all the names of the, the relevant uh, people and and says in general terms what they're going to do. But until people go through an exercise, they, they really haven't given much thought to, okay, what am I going to be asked to decide? What's, you know, what sorts of information am I going to be confronted with? They really have to go through an exercise to, to have any flavor of what an incident is going to be like. Yeah. And, and I also... I view of, of what's necessary. I, I, I also get a sense that um, the lawyers are often surprised how many questions get lateraled to them without much warning. Uh, it uh, turns out to be a lawyer-intensive process, even though the, the uh, response plans tend to be written by uh, by operators. Um, well, uh, two more uh, things. Uh, the uh, Ninth Circuit has... Uh, Kind of chipped away at uh, the 230 immunity that applies. This, that's the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, that says you're not really responsible for what your users say and do if you don't uh, um, uh, stand behind it. Uh, um, but now, if your users are bad enough and do bad enough stuff, apparently uh, you do have an obligation to notice and to warn people. Uh, uh, Katie, uh, how serious a bite out of 230 did this uh, decision take um so i don't think it really it really chipped it away too much further it's very similar to a previous decision that they made 
Um, pretty much what happened, it involved Match.com, um, and the plaintiff claimed she was assaulted by a, ma- a man that she met through Match.com, and that Match.com failed her to warn about warn her about him. Um, and the court said, as it had in the previous case, that that it didn't have to do with anything, you know, in either of the Match.com profiles or anything like that, and it didn't have to do with their role as a um, a publisher or a speaker of the man's content, but that instead it had to do with whether Match.com knew that this man had assaulted women he had met through Match.com before and um, and then failed to warn users that, that that sort of thing was happening. So it definitely limits it, but it's it's very similar to kind of previous interpretations that limit it. And part of the inevitable process where first we embrace new technologies and want to subsidize them by making sure they aren't held liable for everything that happens, and then gradually they get bigger and bigger when we feel less and less sorry for them and more and more inclined to impose obligations on them, uh, like uh, the duty to warn on uh, uh, Match.com. Last uh, topic, uh, the FTC just knows no, they have no sense of restraint at all. Um, LabMD, which is out of business, or the servers, as far as I can tell, are stored in uh, uh, Michael Darty's garage. Uh, uh, the FTC, having lost in front of the only unbiased uh, uh, decision maker and then gotten him reversed by the people who signed their paychecks, uh, um, have said, and we want to impose this rule right now, notwithstanding that it's going up on appeal, and we want to make sure that uh, uh, Doherty is doing all these things to secure his um, his information uh, so that it can't be, so somebody, I guess, doesn't drive into his garage and steal it. Uh, and... Uh, you know, they're making the argument that, well, you know, uh, we're bound to win because we have the better argument, uh, which I find kind of laughable since they lost the only relatively neutral uh, decision maker uh, opinion that uh, that they had. Uh, they are now trying to uh, uh, make the rubble bounce over at uh, Shea Michael Doherty. Uh, uh, we'll see. I'm sure Doherty's uh, lawyers will respond with enthusiasm uh, uh, and then go to the Court of Appeals and ask them to stay the, uh, uh, the decision. And I suspect, if I had to guess, that they'll succeed. Okay, uh, Katie, thank you very much. Maury, thanks for doing this. Have a great uh, uh, honeymoon. Where are you going? Jordan. Excellent. Come on, Petra, etc. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that should be great. Well, I, I, when you come back, you're going to have to tell us uh, what happened and send us pictures. Uh, uh, Michael, I, um, I have to con- congratulate you on a truly New York response to terror, uh, which is to steal the suitcase that the bomb is in and dump the bomb in a dumpster so that it actually malfunctions. Uh, I, you know, all I can say is if ISIS shows up with AK-47s, somebody's going to mug them so they can hawk the AK-47s. It's great. Uh, uh, okay, this has been uh, episode 130 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us your feedback at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us good reviews on iTunes and other podcast aggregators, please. Uh, Soon, uh, later this week, hopefully, we will have Ellen Nakashima uh, uh, straight from the the mean streets of New York uh, talking about, uh, uh, she's been on a roll lately, uh, uh, on um, hacking and terrorism as well. Uh, We'll also be joined in later uh, um, sessions by Matt Cutts. 
formerly the SEO uh, king of Google, uh, and Lisa Wiswell, uh, now of the U.S. Digital Services team at the Pentagon, uh, by Assistant Attorney General John Carlin, by Jonathan Zittrain, whom I saw the other day, and we had a great conversation that I hope we can uh, partially repeat uh, for all of you. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for those and other uh, insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.